Um, I have probably my two favorite activities in life are sleeping and eating. Uh, that is just how I live. I've said before that if sleeping could be a hobby, then it would be my hobby. Otherwise, I don't really have a whole lot of hobbies. Um, Sunday afternoon naps are in a league by themselves. There is something about a Sunday afternoon. Hey, you can't keep interrupting the whole time. You got to be quiet. Let me do this. This is what it's like all day long at my house. Um, but um, I just love a good Sunday afternoon nap. And I want, when I take a nap, I want, to, I want it to be that kind of nap that, like, I wake up and I don't even know, like, what year it is. You know what I mean? Like, you got lines on your face. I want that kind of a nap every single time. Um, and one thing that's happened over the last, I don't know, decade or two um, is that um, the perspective, cultural perspective on sleep has changed. You know, it used to be, it was like, yeah, people would brag about how little sleep they got and as if, like, I'm awesome because I can get by on four hours of sleep or three hours of sleep or whatever. But then, like, research started pouring out and saying, like, no, sleep is good for you. If you don't get enough sleep, your brain doesn't work. And those of us who love sleep already knew that. Like, we already knew, I don't get eight hours, my brain doesn't work. Um, and so it's funny that in this one area of life, like, it is natural for me to be healthy. Like, um, because when you go to my other favorite pastime, which is eating, it is not natural for me to do what is healthy. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the way my tongue is formed in my mouth, the kind of taste buds I have, but pretty much all of my favorite foods are primarily made of sugar, which is not great. Chocolate chip cookies, peach cobbler, chocolate pie, pretty much any other kind of pie. You know, all that stuff is, is sugar. Um, and when I eat, and I do eat like regular non-sugar foods, but, but when I eat, one thing, I, I just kind of want to eat until I'm stuffed. Like, I just eat and eat and eat. I'm going to clear my plate, and I just want to eat until my stomach says, don't you dare take one more bite. That's, I don't know where that comes from. That's just the way I do it. Um, well, for the last, like, couple of months, um, or probably month, I guess, I've been trying to regulate my calories, to only eat a normal human amount of calories in a given day. Um, and because my stomach and my brain are so used to eating so much for so long, when I eat just a normal, reasonable amount of food, I kind of have this constant feeling of hunger, like all day long. Um, because, and, and you know, I think about food, an embarrassing amount, I finish breakfast and I start thinking, well, what's for lunch, you know, or what's for dinner, you know, I don't know if anybody else can relate to that, um, and then you add to that to the fact that, like, at the beginning of this year, in the months leading up to Easter, Abby and I were fasting one day a week, so one day, about 24 hours, not eating at all, and what I've learned through that and trying to regulate my calories is that I am addicted to food, and it's not that, you know, um, I'm feeling true hunger, I'm not. My brain and my tummy are just spoiled little brats who just want more. Uh, and, you know, when you try to pull back that enough, it it's just kind of hangs with you all the time. And now I'm not under any um, illusion that what I'm feeling is real hunger. Um, because, honestly, I don't think most of us have experienced real hunger. Now I know some of you have. You've experienced real hunger and real, like, wondering, like, where's our next meal coming from? Some of you have done that, and I'm not, like, 
diminishing that at all. But I think a lot of us have been spoiled and never having to worry about where that next meal comes from. A lot of us have been spoiled to never know what real hunger is. Um, I know what it is to crave something, but not to really yearn um, for food and to truly feel hunger. Um, Now, we are in the fourth week of this series um, where we're walking through the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes... Um, are these beautiful statements that Jesus made at the beginning of his most famous sermon. Uh, We call it the Sermon on the Mount uh, because it sounds better than Sermon on the Side of a Decently Big Hill. And these eight statements are what Jesus, uh, it's him doing work to try to reconstruct and reshape for us what it means to have a blessed life. Because our idea of a blessed life is typically things like, you know, everyone we love is healthy, physically, mentally. Uh, we have uh, maybe our, the house of our dreams, or at least a house that we've turned into the house of our dreams. Um, it means that we have a, a car that's pretty nice that maybe has a few bells and whistles in it. Um, it means we have enough w- money in the bank accounts and stuff to not really have to worry about bills and if we're going to be able to pay them and if we can get medical care and all of that. And generally for us, if the blessed life is a life that's comfortable, that's easy, that doesn't contain a lot of problems and difficulties and strife. Uh, The blessed life is one where the power never goes out, right? It's where everything always works. The faucet always works. The hot water heater always puts out hot water. It's where the air conditioner doesn't leave you high and dry in the hottest days of the year. We want a comfortable, nice, easy, pleasant life. And so what Jesus does, though, in these Beatitudes is he kind of takes all that and is like, no, and he takes us through situations and emotional places and personal realizations that are not always pleasant. And he says, this is what it is like to be blessed. This is what it means to be blessed. And not only was this stuff challenging to the people that were sitting on that hill listening to him preach firsthand, um, because they lived in a world where might made right. The people with the thickest armor and the heaviest swords were the ones that made all the rules. And so this stuff was challenging for them too, But it's amazing how 2,000 years later, it's still relevant to us um, as we live in a world where we just want comfort. We want ease. And and honestly, we expect it. And we uh, take it for granted so that when there are moments like this where storms take away our power, you know, it doesn't take much for us to get just real grumpy about life. I've been so grumpy for like three days. And there's times I have to stop myself and like, why am I grumpy? Because I'm not comfortable. Poor me. Like, it's like, I, 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 I get it. It's inconvenient, and there's a lot going on, and it wasn't pleasant. But at the, like, if I really had to stop and, like, what's really wrong here? Why am I really upset? It's because I wasn't getting what I wanted. And I was spoiled, and it made me grumpy and all of that. And so it's amazing how Jesus says that the life that his followers are, are going to walk through, the life that he considers blessed, is a, a life that is very different from what we've pictured for ourselves, the life that's very different than what we designed for ourselves. And um, I understand the last couple of weeks when you read the Beatitudes, last three weeks, the first three, they've been kind of, they sounded pretty negative. That starts to change today a little bit for the next few weeks. They get a little bit more positive sounding. So today we are looking at Matthew 5, verse 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this beatitude's a little tricky 
because um, not all of the experts really agree who Jesus is talking about here. Um, and the key issue is with the word righteousness. Uh, this is a, a Greek word that, that actually is translated a couple of different ways. Sometimes it means righteousness, and sometimes it means justice. Like, you can kind of see how those would be a little bit connected. Um, and because of that, there's a, quite a few experts that, when they write about this stuff, they write as if Jesus is talking about people who have suffered injustice. They're the people who have been overlooked, who've been downtrodden, who've been put into poverty, and who've been abused because um, people in power abused their power. And so that people didn't do what was fair and right and good, and these people were those that suffered the consequences of that. And so they say that the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they haven't been shown or justice, they hunger and thirst for justice because they haven't received justice. Their life hasn't been fair. They've suffered unfairly. And so their hunger is for God to show up and kind of fix all the things and bring justice on people. And all of that is, it sounds good and it sounds fine, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that Jesus isn't about that. I mean, you look at a ton of different places in Scripture. Jesus was for the people that were overlooked, the people that needed help, the people that were um, at the you know, wrong end of the power structures. Jesus came to help those people. But I don't think that's what this verse is saying. Um, and um, I think to interpret it that way overlooks one of the most important biblical study principles that we have been talking about kind of regularly for a couple of years, and it's never read a Bible verse in isolation. It sounds a lot more striking and memorable to say never read a Bible verse, but the idea is that never read a verse on its own, or even a short passage on its own, because when you take it out of its context, you can make a lot of things say whatever you want. I mean, you can take a Bible verse and make it apply to you. Make it, you can make it uh, sound like it's okay for you to get revenge on people when that's clearly against what Jesus said. You can make verses make it feel like you're the king of the world and you're more special than everybody else, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You can really take verses out of context and twist them um, and make them look like they're saying something else when if you read them with what's surrounding it, you get a more full picture of what the author was trying to say. And so we don't want to read a verse all on its own. And this isn't just a Bible study principle, really. It's kind of a life principle. Like, we've seen this in the news, right? You've seen political uh, candidates uh, take a statement or a snippet of a speech of their opponent, and they take this one little line, and they kind of make, oh, how stupid is this thing they said, and they twist it a little bit, and they make the other person sound like a moron, when if you took that little sentence and you put it in the rest of their speech, it's perfectly a reasonable thing to say. Um, when I was on my internship, one of the things that um, the media guy did at that church um, was he liked to take sermons of the senior pastor and take little snippets out that were then embarrassing. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know, like he would, if there was ever a, a sermon he did through like Song of Solomon, for instance, which is a pretty spicy book of the Bible, like you just take some of those isolated clips and it makes the senior pastor sound like he's saying some pretty wild stuff, right? And you could just do that. Um, another funny thing they did uh, was, I don't know if you've ever seen like night uh, talk shows that do like unnecessary censorship where you bleep out normal words in the sentence and, all, and your brain just fills it in with the worst possible option. And it makes it sound, so he'd take clips of the preacher and put a little blur over his mouth and put a bleep in there in a sentence. And you're like, oh, that sounds horrible. Like you can take little bits out of context and manipulate them in ways that, they, that, that 
doesn't really reflect the author's true intent or the speaker's true intent. And I think to uh, take a one beatitude out and try to figure it out on its own is not how we're supposed to read these. One thing we've been talking about Every week of this series is that the Beatitudes build on one, one another. And if so if you want to understand a Beatitude, you've got to look at what came before it because Jesus is building essentially a pathway for us. He shows us that we are moving somewhere with these Beatitudes. He's taking us on a journey. And so if we want to understand this one, we've got to recap just a little bit real quick. So we started at the first Beatitude in Matthew 5.3, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be poor in spirit simply means that you know and acknowledge the truth about yourself and every other human being. And it's that you have, are sinful and you have cut yourself off from God through your choice to say, God, I don't want to walk your road. I'm going to walk my road. I don't want your rules. I don't want your good and evil. I'll decide good and evil for myself. And because of that, we walked away from the source of life and walked a road that leads to death of our own making. And sin has so corrupted us by, because we've chosen it over and over again that even our desires are corrupted and twisted, that we no longer even want good. We crave what is wrong. The, the, the unwise thing looks wise to us because we've been so twisted and messed up by sin. And that we have made ourselves an enemy of God through our actions, and there is nothing we can do to get ourselves back in God's good graces. There is nothing that we have the ability to do to come to God and say, I'm sorry, can I please make up for what I've done? We don't have the ability to undo the mess we've got ourselves in because we are spiritually poor. We are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt in many ways. And so once we understand our spiritual poverty and the evil power of sin, well, then naturally, we're going to move to the second beatitude, which is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you see the mess you've gotten yourself in through sin, and you've seen the evil that you've done that's hurt you and that has oftentimes led you to hurt other people and mistreat the people around you, you're going to mourn that. Once you really see it for what it is and the evil that you've brought into the world and the way that you've allowed yourself to be corrupted, that should break your heart and be like, oh my gosh, God, I can't believe I have done this to myself and to the people around me. Oftentimes the people that I say that I love, the people that I've hurt the most are those closest to me. That should lead us to mourning. And so once you've realized your spiritual poverty and you've mourned the weight of sin, you're going to end up in the place of the third beatitude, which is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Being broken over your own sinfulness and mourning it leaves you kind of in a place of just utter humility, utter meekness where you don't feel good about yourself in the sense of like, I'm awesome, I'm going to conquer the world, I'm going to live for me, because you see, living for me is what got me into this mess. And so you think, I can't be the captain of my own ship anymore. I don't deserve to be in charge anymore. And so you lay down your life and say, God, lead me. God, I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble. Please show me your way forward. And so once we've realized our spiritual poverty, once we've mourned the weight of our sin and the consequences of our sin, and we've gotten to a place of utter meekness, then we're ready to move on to the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, in these Beatitudes, we have to understand, Jesus isn't just calling out random people in miserable situations. These, again, these aren't isolated 
You know, it's like, poor you, poor you, poor you. He's taking us on a journey. He's showing us an inward spiritual path that we are going to have to walk if we want to follow him and receive salvation. And each of these Beatitudes is something that his followers must go through if we want to truly follow Jesus. Everybody who gives their life to Jesus at some point is going to realize, I'm in a mess. I've gotten myself in a mess. I'm spiritually poor. Every one of us is going to have to start calling sin, sin, and realizing, I've done a lot of bad stuff. Every one of us is going to have to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I need you. And then we get to this place where we hopefully become the people who want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so um, the way we get to this point is just seeing all that we've done wrong is finally just getting to the place where, man, I want to do right for a change. I've done so much wrong. I've hurt people. I've hurt myself. I've corrupted myself. I've really, really messed up my relationship with God. I want to do good. And you start hungering and thirsting that you would be able to be a person who does righteous things, who does what is good, who does what is honorable, who does what is right. And so to hunger and thirst means to desire that you can live a God-honoring life because you've realized, boy, on my own, I haven't really done that very often. And so it's deeply desiring to be like Jesus, to be a person who shows all of those fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I look through that list, and I think, I'm not all of those things very often. Self-control, I've already talked about that. Uh, love, sometimes, joy. I mean, mm, boy, you wouldn't have found a lot of joy in Anthony the last few days. As I'm just, Again, grumpy because I'm not getting what I want. Um, and, 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 you know, when, you, when you're already mad because life's inconvenient, you notice how like little things feel like bigger things? Like I came over here one day because the church had power, and I was like, okay, we're going to heat up some food. And so um, the microwave in the kitchen isn't plugged into an outlet that works, you know, because the way generators are, not everything works. you got to find the outlet that works, right? So we get the microwave plugged in, and I heat up something, for, and like it's like 30 seconds in, and it overloaded the generator, and the generator shut off. And I'm like, Rah! I don't, and it's like, I, I'm, I'm useless with anything like that. Like, I don't know why. I'm like, did it run out of gas? And Kate, I texted Casey. He's like, I think it's got a gas line. I don't think they run out of gas. I'm like, oh, man, that means I really messed it up. And so I was like, I didn't know what to do. But I'm just like, and I stomp home. And I'm like, get in the car. Guess we're going to go get food somewhere. And then, and we go into town. And, of course, there's like three restaurants open in all of Springfield. And so then we get set in line at, like, Culver's for like an hour to get food. It was just like, and everything. And I'm like, again, I got to eat. In fact, instead of sitting in a hot church building with no air conditioning, I got to sit in a car and be cool and not sweat for a little bit. Like, but no, I'm sitting like, I'm just so mad about everything. So it's like, and so it's, it's so hard to be that kind of person sometimes. And, and you get to those points where like, I want to be good. I want to do what is right. I want to be overflowing with love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and all of those things. Because when we're broken by the weight of our own sin, we see the error of our ways forward. And after we encounter that goodness of Jesus, who every step of the way has just said, I know. Once you get to the place, oh, Jesus, I'm so poor in spirit. What a mess I've made. He goes, I know. Jesus, I've corrupted myself and my family. He goes, I know. Jesus, what do I do? I, I don't know the way forward. He goes, I know. And he, he keeps welcoming us to him every step of the way as we walk this process. We see his love and his grace and his mercy. And, and once we do that, that should open our eyes and say, man, I want to be like that. I want to, 
I want to even want what is good. Um, so that's what it means when we say hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we start wanting to live lives that actually are righteous because we've done a lot of the opposite of that. But the reason Jesus uses the words hunger and thirst is obvious because what happens when you're hungry? Why are you hungry? It's not a trick question. Why are you hungry? Because you didn't eat. Why are you thirsty? Because you didn't drink. The reason we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness is because we're not very often able to be righteous. That although, um, as I've said, you know, I've, I've never really known true hunger, I do think thirst is a little bit more of a universal feeling. Um, we live in a pretty hot part, at least part of the year it's really hot. Got a lot of farmers and people who do work outside, and you get thirsty. Uh, we, we go pretty hard with sports here, especially when we're younger, right? And so if you've ever done, like, football two-a-days at the end of summer prepping up for, like, the season, like, you, you know what, what thirst is, right? And you've been thirsty, and you, most of us can relate to that feeling of, if I don't get a drink right now, I think I'm going to die. Like, you won't probably, but you feel that way. Um, and so that feeling that I want that so badly. I need that so badly. That's the intensity that he's talking about here. But there are going to be so many moments in our lives and in our walk with Jesus when we want to do what is good. We know what we should do. We know what the right choice is. And we still do what is sinful. Despite our best intentions, we still are going to fail to do what is right. No Christian thinks that, okay, I've decided to follow Jesus now I'm perfect. Like, none of, us, none of us should walk in here on a Sunday morning with a swagger. That's not what it is to be a Christian. No, there are times when we, like a dog returning to its vomit, we return to the sin that we should have already left behind. That's from the Bible. That's not just me being gross, by the way. Um, this is the tricky thing about being a Christian. Um, and once we put our faith in Jesus, um, Jesus, what he does is he gives us the status of righteous before we actually have the ability to live a righteous life. So that's why sometimes the Bible says, no, you're righteous, you're holy. And it's like, am I? Like we get the status of being righteous and holy, even though we can't really live it out yet. There's a lot of elements like this in the Christian faith where we live in this thing that a lot of people call the already, but not yet. Like the kinda, but not all the way. Um, and so when we give our life to Jesus, he declares us to be righteous, a sinless child of God, before we have the ability to live a righteous, sinless life. In Romans chapter 3, 22 through 24, just so you know that we, you know, we have the status of righteousness, he says, for all or for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so we covered that part, and are justified or made right with God by his grace as a gift. It's something he gives us, not something we earn, and it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are made right with God because of Jesus, um, um, not by getting our lives together and becoming righteous on our own. So he gives us this status of righteous, um, because what Jesus does on the cross is he takes your record of sin, your record of wrong, on himself, and he gives us his record of right. He kind of trades statuses with us, and he died for our sins so that we could walk away with this status of righteousness. So just as Jesus, when he hung on the cross, he never sinned, but he had the status of a sinner because of us. So we, 
Though we're not sinless, we get the status of sinless because of what Jesus has done. So to God, we have this status, but not really the ability to live it out. Um, Even the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most righteous people, I think, when you look at the New Testament and watch his story unfold, one of the most godly men who ever lived, even he said, there's still those times where I want to do good, and I just struggle with it. In Romans 7, he said this, For I do not understand my own actions. For anybody who's ever put their hand on their head and thought, why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? You are not the first. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Um, I heard a comedian years ago, he said, um, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, I can see him, but he said um, one time he got arrested for being inebriated out in public, and the officer said, you have the right to remain silent, but he said, but I didn't have the ability. <laughs> right? That's kind of, that's kind of, like, I want to do what's right, but I don't have the ability sometimes. And so, let me be clear, though, if you're a Christian, and you continue to struggle with sin, that does not automatically mean that you are not a Christian. It probably just means that you're in process. You're already righteous, but you're not yet fully righteous. Jesus knew that just calling us righteous wasn't enough. That's one reason why he gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon Christians and gives us power to actually start saying no to sin and yes to him. And it's a slow work over time to get us there. And so Jesus ensured a salvation and our eternity is locked and set by declaring us righteous, and because he thought it's going to take you a long time to actually get to be righteous. And then he sends the Spirit so that we can actually be the people who live up to the status he's given us. In Romans chapter 12, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning to give yourself so that what you want and what you crave can die away, that old person of you can die away, And you can be holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Now, this doesn't ever say the Spirit specifically in here, but notice he doesn't say, but transform yourself. He says, be transformed. It's something that happens to us. We allow it to happen by partnering and surrendering to the work of the Spirit in us. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So over time, as we allow the Spirit to work in us, then we start to become more and more righteous. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you might not feel it. Some days you might feel like, man, I'm not getting any better. But then if you look back 10, 15 years, 20 years, you're like, oh, I don't even recognize that person anymore. And you start to appreciate, wow, God has brought me a long way. Oh, thanks, God. I'm still a mess. I see that. But thank you for not being that guy or that lady anymore. Woo! And you get excited about that. And so what he wants for us, though, is after we've kind of been broken down this, from this place of sinfulness and realized the error of it all, he starts to point us in the right direction by helping us to crave what is good so that we can start moving toward what is good, moving away from the errors of our past and toward the godliness for which he made us. 
And for those of us who spend our lives hungering and thirsting for righteousness and doing the daily work of surrendering our spirit, Jesus says that we will be filled. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, that means that ultimately... At the end of the day, we end up being righteousness. At the end of, of things, we end up being righteous, altogether, fully, perfectly righteous. That there will come a time when our nature matches the status Jesus gave us. And what's really cool about that word translated filled is that it means satisfied. Like that thing you've been craving and hungering for, you will be satisfied. Think of the feeling after a really good meal when you're just full and you've had everything you want and you just kind of go, "Woo, that was good. Like that kind of feeling. Or think of those moments when you're just so hot and so worn out and you just want to drink water so bad and you can't quite get it right away. But when you finally do, you just, oh man, it tastes so so good. That's the feeling here. That's the satisfaction that comes. But what's also interesting is that word, sometimes it's translated as gorge. Like that's, the, that's what, how I like to eat. Like I want to gorge myself. Like the, that's the, I couldn't fit, there's not, like physically there's no more food going into my stomach. There's no more room for it. My stomach has expanded to its max capacities. I am gorged. And, and I think, you know, when he says that if we live earnestly, wanting righteousness, craving righteousness, praying regularly, Holy Spirit, help me to do what is good and right, that at some point he is going to make us so righteous, so good, so holy, that there's not going to be any room for more holiness and goodness in our souls. And for anyone who has ever felt frustrated with wanting to do good and not doing it. That sounds pretty good to me. If you've ever wondered, why did I say that? I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be a follower of Jesus, and I'm not the dad I want to be. I'm not the mom I want to be. I'm not the friend I want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the wife I want to be. Like, if you've ever felt that frustration, this verse gives us hope that one day we will be filled. That over the course of our lives, by the power of the Spirit, little by little, yes, we will make progress, but one day, either... When our lives on this earth are over, or when Jesus comes back, he is going to take us the rest of the way and fill us with righteousness. So full of righteousness that all of the sinful desires in us are completely washed away, and we're so pure and so good that there's nothing more that could fit inside of us. And all of those years of desiring to live up to what our Heavenly Father wanted for us, all those years of hungering and thirsting for something better, all of those urges will finally, finally, finally be satisfied in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so th grateful for the progress you make in us. As we wander through life and we make our mistakes and we struggle and we fall short, you keep reaching out to us with an unending reservoir of grace and mercy. That every time we stumble, you lovingly reach out to help us get back up. And by your grace, um, we don't have to sit there and beat ourselves up and think, what's wrong with me? We actually get to say, oh, Spirit, help me do better next time. And we can use our, even our failures as motivation and as um, fuel to, to, to try again. 
and knowing that you're with us and that we're not alone and that one failure doesn't write us off or 20 failures doesn't write us off again, but by your grace and your mercy, every step of the way you're with us, whether we succeed or whether we fail. And so I pray that you would fill our hearts with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for what is good and honorable and holy in your sight and to help wash away the desires in us that are corrupted and um, just messed up from a lifetime of indulging sin and help us to want what is good. Help us to see good as good and evil as evil and to want to move toward what is good so that we can be closer and closer to you with each breath we take, with each step we take, with each day we live. And again, thank you for guiding us and never giving up on a lot of broken people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.